Welcome, everyone, to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm Lori LeBay, the host and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks, and I am uh, thrilled to do this show. I, I absolutely adore it, and uh, it's really a privilege to be able to talk to people all around the world who are doing amazing work. And today we are going to have uh, Dr. Larry Force with us. Um, but before I get to him, I always like to explain a little bit about Alzheimer's Speaks because we're always getting new listeners. And uh, they're always interested in who the heck are we and why are we doing what we're doing. So we'll just get that out of the way first. Um, bottom line, Alzheimer's Speaks is an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort all around the world. And we believe that you know, when we join forces and have these natural, honest conversations like we do here, we're able to help people build their toolkit and remove the stigmas attached to memory loss and and um, hopefully push people forward to continue to live life with purpose. And um, the other core belief we have is just that we need to work together collabor- collaboratively and that um, collaboration, we believe, is the only way we're going to win this battle against dementia. And I know that that, um, that that is working because we were lucky enough to be honored by uh, Share Care and Dr. Oz as the number one influencer online regarding Alzheimer's. And then just recently, uh, Maria Shriver noted us as an architect of change. And the only reason that that happened was because of all of you. You see, your likes, your clicks, your shares, I know you think it doesn't mean much, but it does. It pushes information needed to others out in a real simple fashion. It makes uh, people be able to visually see that there are other resources out there when dementia touches their lives. And many people in our spheres, we don't even know are dealing with this because it is a hidden disease. It's one that people still aren't comfortable in talking with. So Again, I thank you for pushing out if it's your Twitter tribe, your Facebook friends, your Pinterest peeps, your your LinkedIn colleagues, um, and all the other social medias that are out there. Again, truly, truly making a difference, and we hope that you continue to partner with us and, and just spread the knowledge. Um, because here on Alzheimer's Speaks, we believe all voices need to be heard. Which brings me to one last point that I want to make about us is we're always looking for guests and we truly believe everyone's voice needs to be heard. So if you're a person who is having some cognitive issues, maybe you've been diagnosed, maybe you are caring for somebody who has been diagnosed with dementia um, as a family member or friend, maybe you're a professional care partner, maybe you're a researcher or you've written a play or a movie, um, or a book, or some music regarding it, or are doing some advocacy work, we'd love to hear from you, and we'd love to raise your profile in your voice, because it truly does take um, 
all of society to lift us and move us forward with this. So let me get let me get back to our guest now. Um, Dr. Larry Forrest and I have worked together over the years, and um, I just uh, adore, you know, all of the work that he's doing. Larry is a gerontologist, and he has worked in the field of aging and disabilities for over 30 years, not only as a practitioner, but um, an academician, an administrator, and a researcher, both in public and, and the private sectors. He's also the founder of Age Plan, which is a national advocacy and training organization. And he recently authored the book called The Detoxing of Caregivers, Key Tips for Survival, Strength, and Patience. And I just love, love that title. Um, he is a licensed clinical social worker, and he's also on the um, a national board certified clinical um, hypnotherapist. So who'd have thought? So welcome, Larry. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Lori. Thank you so much for inviting me. And um, you you need to know how valuable the platform that you have built and the voice that you have built is and how it's received, you know, worldwide, not only within each state across the nation, but worldwide. Well, thank you. A a noble job in, in taking a lead on this. Well, thank, and thank you. you for having me. Well, I'm I'm lo- really looking forward to our conversation uh, today. But before we get started talking about your book, can you just give people a little bit of background about personally? Have you um, or your family members been touched with dementia? Absolutely. I mean, not only do I arrive at the table, the caregiver table here, you know, based upon knowledge and training, but um, what overshadows that is based upon the reality of caregiving. My uh, 97-year-old mother passed away last year, and she had Alzheimer's disease. And we provided care for her for not 17 days, but for 17 years. And as you know, it's an all-encompassing, you know, role in your life. Uh, She lived independently until she was about 91, and then we had the diagnosis arrived at. And then she wanted to continue to live independently, so we brought AIDS in, home health care AIDS. And she was doing pretty well with that. And then one day, um, by accident, uh, you know, reaching for something, she fell into the shower. Mm-hmm. And when she fell into the shower, uh, you know, my biggest concern was I, I, when my brother called me and said, you know, mom's on the way to the hospital. My biggest concern was, oh, please, I hope it's not a broken hip. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't a broken hip, but it was a fractured neck. Mm. And uh, as a result of that, uh, we went through a whole litany of rehab and surgeries and, and, you know, and she was able to adapt after that. She, she was, uh, she, but, but the reality was that she was not going to be able to live independently anymore. And, you know, both my brother and I said, come and live with us. She didn't want to do that. And we had, um, it's all about connections. I tell my students and we had somebody who was connected to this, unbelievable world-class nursing home facility and uh, she lived there for four years and she became a rock star there you know at the beginning you know it it wasn't like she was like thank god i'm here but it took a couple of weeks and then and then she really assimilated into that so yes i had a, a lot of experience firsthand experience I guess so. I guess so. Um, Larry, let's talk about caregiving, um, because I know that you you talk about how this is really a normal part of adulthood now. 
And yet I think most people don't even view themselves as a care caregiver um, or a care partner. So can you, can you talk about, you know, why you believe this is a normal part and what adults should expect on this journey? Well, I, I think it's, you know, it's, it's considered normal. I mean, just look at the expansion and longevity, you know, with people living longer. So the result of the fact that people have now an advanced age span, lifespan, you know, there's more opportunity for other adults to be present as they're in their advanced age or especially if illness is intersected. Mm-hmm. I mean, the reality is, is that, as I say to my wife, I, I hope our kids are watching what, what we're doing. You know, as I was caring for my mother, my wife was caring for uh, a father that, uh, that was 90 that became ill and then died about six months ago. And, um, you know, now on our radar is uh, my mother-in-law, my wife's mother. You know, and the fact is, it, it shouldn't be a surprise that, you know, that at some point in the development, you know, it's like at 16, you get a license, at 18, you can do this, at 21, you can do that. I, I think it, it is a mild, it is a normative milestone to expect that at some point in your life, you will be asked to step up and provide presence and care, you know, in that caregiving role. Now, the interesting thing is there's differences. You know, when I did my doctoral studies, I looked at the impact of kinship on accessing social model adult daycare. Mm-hmm. The reality is, is that wives never really saw themselves as caregivers. They, they, they didn't really, you know, they, they didn't absorb that, that name. I mean, they felt as though they were doing this type of whatever for their husbands all the way through their life. Husbands really started to see themselves as caregivers, you know, when, when they could no longer... As long as they were driving, they felt as though that they were providing care. Driving was instrumental for, for husband caregivers. Mm-hmm. And then sons and daughters, sons and daughters could almost tell you exactly what they were wearing when they found out that they were going to be caregivers. So it, it's, it's interpreted differently depending upon what role you have in the family. Well, that's interesting because I don't think people view it like that. But I don't think people think that hard about this either. It's not something that people really want to investigate. I think they're kind of kind of scared of it and push it away as long as they can. Um, you know, uh, would you agree with that? I would. And, and I love the European term. In the European literature, you know, the, the, the gerontological literature, you're not going to find the word necessarily caregiver. The term is terror. And it's an interesting, it's an interesting take on it because that's what we are. We're care. It's, you know, years ago we called them sons and daughters and neighbors. I mean, we formalized the role in, in the United States at least, but I love that European perspective of the fact that you are a carer. It almost looks like the word career is spelled incorrectly because mm-hmm. when they, when they spell it, it's C-A-R-E-R. Mm-hmm. But that's what, that's what they're saying that, Throughout the lifespan, you know, you will be in a position of being a carer. And, you know, caring comes in many different forms. You know, for some people, it's emotional. For some people, it's physical. For some people, it's financial. You know, it, it comes in many different forms. But I do agree that, you know, the reality is, is that there's, more oper- there's going to be more of a chance of you being a caregiver than you not being a caregiver. Yeah. I know... Um... When I go out and speak, I, I don't push the word carer as much as care companion and care partner. And just because it. in terms of talking with uh, people with dementia, um, anyways, here in the States, a lot of them think that that still refers to one person caring for the other and it not being relationship-based. 
um, because that's kind of what caregiver says. I'm giving it all away. And um, well, I, have, I have a dear friend, Jeffrey Kahana, mm-hmm. who's a historian and a um, um, and also a JD. And his parents, even Boas Kahana, a well-known gerontologist, the world-renowned. They're out of um, uh, Cleveland, out of Case Western. And Eva has uh, introduced a term a number of years ago, um, care receiver. Mm-hmm. You know, because of the fact that we also talk about, you know, the role of the caregiver. But sometimes what happens is in, in that mix, the voice of the care receiver becomes mute. Mm-hmm. And, and it's an interesting, you know, spotlight on the role of being the receiver of care, not just the giver of care. Yeah. Well, and we we don't, um, especially here in the U.S., we're not good about having someone take care of us because we, I think, um, frame that as lack of inability of, um, you know, it's all about taking things away. It's about losing independence instead of gaining independence. It's it's it really kind of has this whole negative scenario attached to it. And so people push that away when really, you know, when you're getting the help you need, you can live better. I mean, that's as, as simple as it is. And and yet we have this fear of not being able to be independent, um, not being able to live, you know, if in a big house or not being able to drive. Well, that doesn't mean that there aren't other alternatives. We've just, I think, um, as a society built up this wall that we're all supposed to do it alone. And um, especially with dementia, I think it's making making us and teaching us that we're better off together um, than we are as individuals. You know, we're, we're, our strengths are stronger. That's, that's how I frame it. But I don't, I don't know what your thoughts are on those comments, Larry. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, you don't have to do this alone. I mean, I think, you know, the gift and privilege that we have had, you and I and millions of other people, is that we have experienced that role. Mm-hmm. It's going to be interesting when you catch up to us 20, 30 years from now, how we play that role out on the other side. Yep. You know, I mean, I mean, one of the things that, uh, that I know is that, you know, aging is not about frailty and decline. Mm-hmm. Aging is about adapting. You know, illness is about frailty and decline. You don't die from old age. You die from illness. Mm-hmm. And the fact is that, you know, um, you know, I don't want my kids. I mean, I, I see this all the time in my private practice where people come in and they're concerned and they're fretting about, you know, their parents. And one of the issues is driving and you know, how do they get the keys away. I mean, that's that's a paramount issue in the role of caregiver. And I think that, you know, I, I don't want my kids wrestling me down the street for my car keys. So the fact is, at some point, you know, I have to. Listen to what I've been talking about over the course of years. You know, can I live exactly where I'm living forever? Probably not. And the reason is I grew up in a metropolitan area where I could have lived and died on the same street. But now I live for years, I live in more of a a rural area. Mm -hmm. And the fact is without driving, there isn't isn't, uh, opportunity, as much opportunity to connect. Mm-hmm. So I have to I have to be vigilant about. It. I mean, I haven't come up with a you know an actual date that that transition will occur, but there's a reality to it. At some point, I will be giving up my keys, just like I couldn't wait to get them when I was 16. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, there, there has to. Be, I read this article not too long ago. One of the best places to retire is New York City, and I know the cost can be prohibitive. But what they were talking about is not the cost, but the services that are out there. 
uh-huh. and what's available for people. You know, public transportation, medical facilities, you know, uh, arts and leisure, uh, restaurants, doctors. You know, it's, it, you know urban, cent- urban, urban centers can be great places to retire. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Now, I want to talk about... Um, you know, your your book, needless to say, and some of the chapters and things that you have in here. You start with kind of an introduction and overview, and then you go to the personal side of caregiving and how did it start, and it's all about you. I'm just going to kind of read off some of these chapters. Different styles of caregiving, um, and then you talk about fast forward and DSBT, which we definitely are going to want to talk about simple steps, um, taking care of all of you. Then you talk about, um, whole, you know, holistic stuff, um, nutrition, and um, some. you've got some resources and thoughts and reflections and stuff in here. This is really a, a pretty easy read, and um, it's something you can pick up and put down and pick it back up again um, and go back and kind of review your thoughts because, you know, um, as I was reading it, you know, I think when somebody's in different stages of the process, they might interpret some of this a little bit different just because we're coming from a different perspective. And that's one of the things that I liked about the book is, um, you know, you can use it throughout your journey and uh, to help it be a support. What made you decide to write the book, Larry, The Detoxing of Caregivers? I, you know, it, it really, I mean, I, I, I write. I mean, you know, I'm an academic, I'm a uh, practitioner, so I, I do write. But typically I write to the scientific audience. Mm-hmm. And the fact is that uh, that's not the audience that I was looking at. I was looking at the audience that, that's, that's in the kitchen, that's in the, in, the, in the living room, that's sitting next to their parent or spouse in the doctor's waiting room. You know, I wanted to write to people where I, where I lived for those 17 years. And what hit me was last year, you know, my mother died a year ago, October, and now we get to Christmas and uh, my wife's father is, you know, uh, declining. And we had made an attempt to um, go to Florida for like three or four days. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we truncated it. We, you know, it's almost like a stealth bomber. You know, these were the days that we were going to try to get away. So what happens is that we make the plans, but then her father started to cascade down. So when I'm thinking I'm going to be sitting at Kennedy Airport flying down to uh, Tampa, instead I'm sitting in a Starbucks, you know, 90 miles away from New York City, and I'm drinking a cup of coffee and I'm writing. And what I started to write was the, the, whole, like, the whole experience. It was almost like a, a blog reflection. And then as I was writing, what came to me is the fact that you know, the irony is there's a lot of things we can learn from other systems. And when you look at the addiction and recovery system, look at the model that they use. They use the model of crisis, stabilization, detox, uh, rehabilitation, and then community follow-up. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, you know, that's the same type of model that we should be using with caregivers because it is crisis, okay? There is a need for detoxing and stabilization. There is a need for rehabilitation. And there's also a need for a community follow-up. So what I argued for in that piece was the, the detoxing of caregivers. Mm-hmm. And that night in that Starbucks, 90 miles away, what came to be is, you know, the title of the book and um, then the material that followed. But what I was saying, and I continue to say, is that we should look at other 
systems that have been successful in providing presence, hope, and recovery for individuals and try to figure out if we can peel away some of those, you know, um, systems or some of those, the steps that they use in order to work with caregivers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting um, way to look at it because again, the, there are a lot of overlaps, and it is a it is something that needs to be approached differently. It needs to be talked about. Period. Um, you know, what is a caregiver? How does it make you feel? It it really is kind of a, a coming clean process. And you know, bottom line, we're, we're care caregivers, care partners, care companions, cares whatever you want to talk throughout our life, but when it when we um tend to be taking care of somebody later in life um we really look at it um from a societal viewpoint it's really almost looked at as a burden by most people and something that they don't want to do you know that there's not joy it's just going to be overwhelming it's going to be crisis mode only and I think there's so much more to our relationships than that. Um, and you I know, think... for, a substantial, for a substantial part of my career, I spent time working in the public sector as a psychologist. Mm-hmm. And I worked with families that had children, with adult children with intellectual disabilities or psychiatric needs. And the interesting thing is that when we catch up to those parents of children with special needs later on in life, in their 80s, late, mid-80s, late 80s, and we measure them on the scales of burden. They're less burdened than the general population. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because their role is still intact. They've been doing this all the way through their life. That's different than caregiving. Caregiving mm-hmm. typically, yes, there are with special needs children, having a child with autism, absolutely lifelong. But caregiving seems to come in at different times along the adult development stage. And the thing that I find interesting is in my private practice, if you could mute the words and just look at the people that show up. Some of them are showing up because they're addressing addictions in in later life. Some of them are showing up because they're they're addressing caregiving issues and stress and overwork and anxiety and resentment and all the other things that go with it. And if you just mute their voices and just look at them, you'd be hard pressed to see that to distinguish who's dealing with what. Mm-hmm. Because caregiving can wear, it, it, look, it can put, add strength, it can add valor. I mean, absolutely, it can wear you down. Okay, it can absolutely wear you down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I guess my argument with that would be that, um, and not that we can't get worn down, because I totally, totally agree with that. But I think in terms of how we look at the role, I think it's a much more natural role than what we're led to believe, what we've, what we've been taught. And I think that's, um, I think that's done society harm, you know, because, you know, when we're taught something is going to be heavy and a burden, then that's what we're going to find. That's what we're going to be looking for because that's what it's supposed to be. And most people don't go outside the box of what they're told to look for. You know, and when you, especially when you're overloaded, you know, you don't, you don't have the strength, you don't have the time, you just, you know, you don't have the creative juices to even look at things differently. You just kind of go with that mode. And, and so I guess that's my point um, would be that, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of different roles and, um, 
but how we give care to people as a whole, I think is um, is an art that has been lost. Um, I think so too. I mean, I think, you know, my simple perspective on this is the fact that, you know, when it comes to my, my father died when I was 21, he, he died an off time death at the age of 55. Mm-hmm. Now we fast forward, my mother's, you know, 97 years old. And, one of the things that I always look at is the fact that she was there for me. So uh, I'm going to be there for her. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, I mean, it may be simple or whatever, but you know what? That's the power of it. In, in my work, what I've seen and, and I've identified is different styles of character. Mm-hmm. You know, I see the hero. The hero does it because it needs to be done. Mm-hmm. You know, then I see what I term the martyr. The martyr does it and lets everybody know it's being done. Mm-hmm. And then my first article on it, in my third category, were the snakes, people that just slithered away. They didn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that I had lost a group, a group that wasn't present, but not because they were snakes. They weren't present because they just couldn't do it. They just couldn't watch the demise of the person that they loved. Mm-hmm. And I went back and I referred to them as the devastated, rewrote the article and called it adult styles of caregiving, heroes, martyrs, snakes, and the devastated. Mm-hmm. But in doing, in doing the writing for this book, I was talking to a dear friend of mine, and she said, you know, it's interesting you say that, because what I see is I, I've, I've seen the wolves, as she's categorized them, the ones that come in and take over complete power. Mm-hmm. And then I started to think some more, and, you know, the idea of the liquidators, the liquidators that show up and they want to manage the assets more than they want to manage the care of the person. Mm-hmm. So the, the takeaway is that there's multiple wolves here, and it, and you know, caregiving is is experienced by an individual very uniquely. Mm-hmm. Some people it, it it makes you stronger and and you're the, the hero, and some people it just you know it just tears you apart. You know, my question a year after on the anniversary of the death of my mother, I, I, I go to the cemetery, which is a tradition in our family, and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, okay, the real question on the way down, I was thinking, is now what? I mean, the care, and that's a, that's an issue that I think we need to address as well uh, as as a field. I mean, caregiving becomes a major role for an individual, and then the role ends. Mm-hmm. Now the question is, now what? My youngest son said to me about two weeks before my mother died. He said, "Dad, look, we're worried about Grandma, and we understand that she's you know cascading down, but we're also worried about you because what are you going to do with your time?" And I thought that was a very, you know, powerful, profound question because my time had been consumed by being a son. My identity is being the youngest, uh, you know, son of an Irish woman. I mean, it's a whole role, not only the caregiving role, but the whole, you know, identity of son and ethnicity and everything else. So I think that that's something that as a field we need to address, too. How are we present for individuals that are caregivers once the care has come to a close? Well, it's interesting that you talk about that because in um, Roseville, our, our Alzheimer's and Dementia Community Action Alliance team just rolled out a new kind of support group or gathering. And it's very similar to the memory cafes in some ways in terms of its looseness because um, it's very unstructured. Um, but we call it um, the De- Dementia Caregiver Reentry Program because so many people are lost. You know, they've lost their identity, um, and they're going through multiple losses. So we actually have two groups. One group is for those who have actually lost, physically lost their loved ones. 
And then the other group is um, those people can still attend uh, the second group, but it's also for people that are um, dealing with somebody with dementia in later stages or closer end stages, and they are feeling the multitude of losses, which could be somebody can't drive, maybe someone's going to day placement, maybe someone has to physically move into a community, um, all of those things, you know, and all they have time on their hands or, you know, with the loss of um, driving or someone not being able to do finances, they've got the loss of time, you know, um, which really overwhelms us as well. And so we're just getting like-minded people who are going through similar experiences together to talk about the process and how are they coping, what's working, what's not working, um, what do they need from their community, you know, to help them through this process. What do they need from family and friends? And um, we're just, like I said, we just, we just started this in October, um, but it's been received well. And I, I think it's something that will grow, and we're more than willing to to share um, that concept with anybody who wants to start one up. You know, because it's again, it's kind of going on the the memory cafe. Um, structure. Well, you know, Lori. I mean, I'm not I'm not uh, I'm not one to pat myself on the back or pat you on on the back as well. But look look at what we've done. Mm-hmm. Okay, we we've taken an experience and tried to do good with it, whether it be the development of a national voice, the writing of a book. I mean, we, we take, we would not be here if we had not had the experiences that we had. Exactly. And I think that, you know, then, and, and there's some benefit to that. Not everybody has to set up, you know, an industry or a writing or a presence or whatever, but the fact is to be able to take that. And, and, and I tell my students, I tell my friends, I'm never going to get over the loss of my mother. I'm just mm-hmm. learning how to live alongside of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this idea that you you know you have a time a timeline and you know six months out you know you're going to stop you know feeling a sense of loss that's that's artificial. Mm-hmm. There isn't there isn't any book that I can give you that says you know on page 38 this is where you should be. Yeah. Because as I tell my students, everybody lives uniquely, dies uniquely, and grieves uniquely. But I think the idea of doing something productive is so powerful mm-hmm. and beneficial. I I totally totally agree with that and and just raising the conversation helping the next guy you know it's it's uh, kind of the the verbal of extending a hand you know to the yeah. next guy out um, and and getting creative and um, sharing that toolkit because it is unique and there isn't a step by step nor will there ever be I I I, I truly don't believe that. Um, you know, and one of the comments with dementia is that, you know, they always say, when you've met one person with dementia, you've met one. Well, the same thing goes for a care partner or a caregiver Absolutely. or a care companion or a care, whatever you choose to call them. And then the environment that we're in changes everything. The mood that we're in changes everything. Um, you know, so we have to look bigger picture. I I talk about um, the symptoms of dementia being very much like emotions you know, how they ebb and flow through a day. And I think the same thing happens with, uh, with someone who's caring for another. You know, it, they're, they're not stagnant. They're going to have different moods throughout their days. They're going to, you know, they're going to feel different things at different times, maybe doing the same task. And that's just part of the journey, you know, that needs to be explored um, and, t- and hopefully talked about and shared. 
Well, I think, I mean, again, I mean, think about the platform that you provide, the opportunity for people to do that, mm-hmm. you know, on so many different levels, whether it be, you know, accessing your resources, being on your radio show, you know, uh, being part of uh, lectures. I mean, you know, bravo. You know, I mean, it's, it's you've given a, a, you know, no pun intended, but you've given a voice. You know, you've given a voice to the issue of Alzheimer's disease. You know, my biggest concern from, you know, the academic perspective is that there's a lot of good material out there, but -hmm. unfortunately, a lot of it is corralled in academic silos, and it's shared in professional journals at professional conferences, but it doesn't get out to the people that are actually going to benefit from it by using it. Or or it's not written in a way that they will apply it, because it's too dry, it's too... It's too I mean, technical. I, right. I mean, I intentionally, I have a friend that's a neurologist, and over the course of years, he's treated people with ADD. And he writes as well. So he would write these books, you know, coming at it from the scientific perspective, you know, trying to tone it down a little bit. But, you know, they were long books. Mm-hmm. And he'd give them to his clients, you know, as references to read. And they wouldn't read it in his patients. And then it hit him one day. The reason they're not reading it is because of the fact that one of the primary issues they're dealing with is attention, you know, the lack of attention. Mm-hmm. So he he took his he then started to write in, in smaller format. And I intentionally wanted this book to be readable from beginning to end. Be, be, you can work with it. You can use it as a guidebook. But I didn't want to put out a 500 page, you know, thesis that people that are caregiving are not going to be able to ever complete. Mm-hmm. So I, I was very sensitive to that, you know, who, who I was writing to and why I was writing. Yeah, I, I think that that is um, extremely important um, to just talk the everyday language. And, and you know, by sharing stories, um, people in the trenches, I mean, they can um, they can relate you know, versus trying to process, I, I think, um, you know, a person with dementia will say that, you know, their mind is spinning actively all the time. They're constantly trying to process. But I think um, someone who is just feeling overwhelmed in the caregiver journey is doing exactly the same thing. They're just buzzing. You know, you're just trying to keep on top of things and you're multitasking and you're not sleeping well and you're not eating well and you're not thinking clearly um, you know, all of those things come into play as well. And so we need to have forms of media that are engaging um, and open and non-threatening. Um, something that makes people not feel like an idiot, you know, something that makes them go it, where it's it's like a friend just having a conversation like we're like we are on the show today. You know, it's it's easy to listen to. It's um it's not strained. They don't have to think of now. What does that word mean? And you know, I got to go look that up. Or I'm not. I'm not quite sure. I'm getting this. This step is pretty complicated. It's just through storytelling, and, and storytelling tells the process. But more importantly, it expresses the emotion going with it. And I think, to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, Larry, but you know, that's what most people struggle with is that whole emotional side of being a care partner. I mean, that's the piece, that emotional piece is the one usually that wears us out more so than the physical side. And not in all cases, but I think in most. 
Well, I mean, I think, you know, the reality is that there's nobody that speaks to us more than we speak to ourselves. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we have a tendency not to say the most positive, supportive things. Mm -hmm. So, and we would, would, in some cases, we would not allow anybody else to speak to us the way that we speak to ourselves. And I think, you know, the the (laughs) emotion. That's What's so, that? That is so true. That is so true. It's true, you know. And I think you know the the emotional toll. You know that's why you know part of the book talks about the importance of taking care of one of the, the most important person, which is you as the caregiver. Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 without taking care of you, one of the things I say: without you, there is no them. Mm-hmm. You know, um, in the course that I teach in case, on casework issues, I had the students initially put together a, a schedule, a planner. Mm-hmm. Then I had the students put together a budget. Because one, one of the things I want to show them is that you really can't help manage somebody else if you can't manage yourself. And the importance of taking care of you, and that's where this dimensional solution-based treatment approach, you know, more from. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, of course, time, I mean, the benefit of, you know, being in the position I am, of course, time I've been exposed to different, you know, theoretical backgrounds. You know, the mm-hmm. psychoanalytic, cognitive behavioral goes, it goes on and on. But I was really attracted to the solution focus. Because solution is not just problem oriented. It's, 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 it's a solution. The dimensional solution based treatment. Well, look, I cannot, somebody comes to me, I cannot change the age that they are at. That's the age they are. Mm-hmm. I don't have the power or the magic to change the situation that they're experiencing. But what I can do is I can help them alter the way that they look at themselves, therefore look at those things. So, you know, in our field, there's this whole focus on biopsychosocial paradigms. When you come in, you know, you look at the person biologically psycho. That's nice, but I think it's outdated. Mm-hmm. And the paradigm that I've introduced instead is this holistic triage, which is this cognitive approach, energy approach, and movement and spirituality. Cognitive, I, in my private practice now, and I've instituted this about 18 months ago, if somebody comes to see me for any type of you know, therapeutic intervention, I will only see them if they um, agree to engage in both working with a nutritionist and being involved in some type of uh, formal or semi-formal exercise program. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody comes in, they're feeling lousy, they're feeling depressed, they're feeling overwhelmed. And then you find out they're drinking six Cokes a day and 14 bags of potato chips. There's nothing that I can do to help them. They're, mm-hmm. they're going to continue to feel that way. Yeah. Now, I'm not telling them they have to go green or they have to become vegetarians. But the fact is that from my perspective, the cognitive approach is the talking therapy. And I use uh, clinical hypnotherapy, mm-hmm. which is really nothing more than imagery and relaxation techniques. And then a nutrition approach. And I, I, I tell them, you know, I, I refer them out to nutritionists that I work with that I value. They can go find their own. But I really value this, this woman's opinion because she's living what she's practicing. And then the idea of movement. I don't care if it's a gym. I don't care if it's a golden retriever and you're taking a walk every day. But I'm always taken by the fact that people will run down when a psychiatrist prescribe medication, they will run down to the drugstore, take that medication as prescribed on the hour that it's supposed to be taken. But when I say to them, you know, what about going for a massage? What about going for a walk? What about, you know, how much water are you drinking? There seems to be a hesitancy. I am not against medication. 
but I am against the fact of using medication without trying to use anything else that can be effective. Mm-hmm. I, I totally agree with that. Larry, can you tell us about your dimensional solution-based treatment and, and how, you know, what is it and um, how is it in, as, in fact, um, as an intervention? How does it work? What, what, you know, what it is, it, it, when, I, when I see people for the first time, I call it, the, to me personally, I call it, the, it's the landscape session. Mm-hmm. But you get a sense of who's who, what are the issues. And typically, you know, there are dimensions out there. So whether it be caregiving, whether it be a relationship, whether it be a job, whether it be an adult child or a young child, there are dimensions out there that are impacting the person. That's why they're sitting in front of me. Mm-hmm. I call them dimensions. Now, the fact is dimensions uh, take on different forms. Some of them can be very intense. Some of them are passing. And the thing that I say to them, as I indicated, I can't, I, I'm not, first of all, I tell them, look, I am not, I'm not your hero. I can't fix you because you're not broken. Mm-hmm. So let's get that. I mean, you talk about a shift in the way we look at caregiving. I think we'd also need a shift in the way that we look at the role of therapy and and how people see themselves. Some people come to therapy, they think they're broken and they're going to be fixed by someone. doesn't happen. There's no, there's no magic dust that I can, you know, put on somebody and say, okay, you're cured. Mm -hmm. You know, more, more work happens outside of the session than happens in the session. So the dimensional solution based treatment uses the, as as an underlying foundation uses solution focused practice. And this is what they say, the solution focus, and I love it. It's almost like opening up the window and letting fresh air in. So they say, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Mm-hmm. They, use this, they use this paradigm. It's called the miracle question. Tomorrow you wake up and everything you're addressing has been resolved. The miracle has happened overnight. How does that look and how do you act? And what that shows to me is it shows the power of imagery. The fact is that, you know, I had a professor years ago that used to say adults really don't make major changes in their life for at least 18 months because they have the image of the way it looks. I don't think it takes that long. But I think you can use, and that's why the hypnotherapy is so good, because it's all relaxation and imagery. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about the way ideally you would like to live. And once you capture that, you know, the, the image of how you really want your life to be, and here's the, here's, here's the, uh, the statement, then, then go live it. Mm-hmm. You know, Albert Ellis, who had a theory, rational motor therapy, said, you know, treating the alcoholic. You know, the alcoholic comes in once and says, you know, I want to stop drinking, I want to stop. Well, Ellis was very, very direct. Some people would even think crude in his, in his intervention, but he was very direct. And he would say, and stop. You know, eventually you have to get to the point of listening to what you're saying to yourself. If you really want to stop or you really want to start something, then get up and let's do it. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds simple. It's almost like, you know, Nancy Reagan meets Albert Ellis, you know, just say no. But the reality is that there's some power in that. If I can, you know, dimensional solution-based treatment approach, which I, I practice short-term psychotherapy. I see people maybe eight to 12 sessions and then maximum, then they go away. If they want to come back, they can come back. But the idea is to be able to implement these things in their life. I tell people, and I love this statement that that I I, I tell everybody, to me, a good therapist is one who you forget. 
mm-hmm. not to create a dependency on the person, but really that, you know, you've come in, you've made some, you know, some shifts, some, you've altered a couple things, and then you go back to your naturally occurring living community, to your life, and get involved in that for support. So the, the, the major, you know, premise of the dimensional solution-based treatment is that it uses a paradigm of, you know, cognition, of energy, movement, and spirituality. But spirituality is as, as unique as caregiving. What mm-hmm. spirituality means to me could be a formal religion. What spirituality could mean for somebody else is absorbing the daylight and, you know, in walking in the woods. I mean, there isn't a partic- particular form that has to be followed, a format. Yep, yep. Agree. Um, I have, I want to um, go on to a, another area here. Um, I want to know what your thoughts are about why we don't take good care of ourselves. <laughs> you know, we, we can identify when we have to care for somebody else, but we we're not really good at analyzing what our own bodies, minds, heart, and soul needs. Why do you think that is? If you even agree with that statement, I should I should put that first. I mean, I agree with that. That's such a profound statement. And, you know, when you think about it, why is it? Look, I mean, you, you know, the old saying: if um, if the person could live the life that they want everybody else to live, things would be pretty good. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, it's you know, why is it? I I, I I'm at a loss for that. I think. I think one of the reasons is because of the fact that, you know, we become so comfortable with our way. And the fact is sometimes it takes a, you know, a startling event or a change, an altering event in order to get your attention. You know, for me personally, I've been going to the gym now every day for the last three and a half, almost four years. The other day in the locker room, somebody says, why do you come every day? And I said to him quite seriously, keep my youngest son off my shoulders okay? because of the fact that he was all over me about you need to go to the gym. You need to go to the gym. And I have to tell you something. Roy. I'm not Arnold Schwarzenegger, but the fact is I cannot stress enough the way that it is altered my worldview. I have gym buddies. I go to the gym. There's a socialization component to it. I feel so much better about the way that I feel about me and about other things because of the fact that I'm going. Now, this is not a sixth grade gym class. I mean, some people need psychotherapy just to get over some of the experiences they had in early gym classes. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the idea of movement, of doing something on a regular basis, building it into your life. And, you know, I I think I've missed maybe in, in close to four years, maybe five days. And it's, it's you know, I go very early in the morning. It's It's great. And especially because of the socialization component, you know, it's not just, you know, lifting weights and, you know, interacting with machinery. But Mm -hmm. I think, you know, going back to your question, why is it that, you know, people don't take care of others? Because I don't think they see themselves in the same way. You know, I, I don't think that, you know, and I had an experience, which now I look back on was a gift. But when I was going through it, I didn't think of it as a gift. I was involved with the American Red Cross, who, uh, you know, disaster mental health services at 9-11. And 11 months later, I got very sick. And I was out of commission for close to a year. You know, and during that time, operated on, you know, dealing with a thousand hands touching me. And, and 
I remember one time lying in bed saying to myself, if somebody walked in this room and said, I want everything you have, everything you've acquired, and we're going to get you better, my response would have been, what are you waiting for? Because you really start to see what really matters. You know, and, and you know, on a personal level, some of my friends refer to me as Lazarus because I got back up again. But <laughs> looking back looking back on it, it was it's an absolute gift because it showed me how important to appreciate the simple things. Now, is every day Nirvana? No. Every day is not Nirvana. I mean, I'm not, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not, uh, that's not my style. Mm-hmm. A philosopher friend of mine said one time, do you think this will be something, the events you've been through, do you think this will be life-changing or will be like a bump in the road? Almost as profound as your question. Mm-hmm. And I thought about it, and here's the answer. It'll be both. There will be things that will be life-altering. And those other times, it's like you view an accident on the road, you drop down to 30 miles an hour, and five minutes later, you're back up to 60. You know, it's kind of like you passed it. Mm-hmm. But it does really show you the importance of carpe diem, seize the day. You know, I mean, the, the fact is that, you know, life is good. And, and the reason that life is good is because it is connected to purpose and meaning. Think about yourself. Think about the, the friends and the colleagues that you have. I, I hear people, Jim, other places tell me they're going to retire. What? From what? Retiring from me would be retiring from me would be like divorcing myself. Mm-hmm. I will always do something. I'll, I'll adapt. I'll do less of it. But retire from from that. What about purpose? You can drink all of the anti-aging drinks you want. You can lather yourself with all the anti-aging creams. But if you divorce yourself from purpose and meaning, you're going to get old and you're going to get old fast. Yeah, I I agree. Um, one one thing I wanted to. Um... I just wanted to make a comment on, you know, about why we don't care for ourselves. And and I think part of it is we're scared to look deep. You know, for me anyways, I always took care of everyone else because then I didn't have to take care of me because then I I had an excuse. I didn't have time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I I think that that is um, pretty prevalent out in the world too. I don't think I was the only one running around doing that. And then when I actually took the time you know, to, to look deeper, like you, I found all these gifts in simplicity. And I found that what I thought I needed, I didn't need. And that, you know, that, that's kind of a big shift in paradigm in terms of lifestyle. And I mean, those are big things, um, but they don't have to be scary things. You know, you don't have to, no, not at all. you don't have to do them overnight. And they truly can be huge, huge gifts if we take the time to step through them, you know, because we, you can, you know, and even when you were talking about, you know, driving slow by an accident and moving through it, you know, when you drive slow, you're still observing, recognizing and accepting what's happened, you know, and if you don't do that, you really can't move through it. You're going to get stuck when it comes to our emotions, you know, we really have to appreciate the accident within us and that we're not perfect. None of us are. And to stop trying to hold to that standard. You know, we're just... That's fl- a great, that, you know, that's a great quote that you just came up with, the accident within us. Yeah. We're just... You know, because I think you're right. Yeah. We're, 
we're more we're more fluid, you know, like a river. It just flows, and you know, sometimes it creeps on shore, and sometimes it shrinks up, and you know, sometimes it it swamps a city. I mean, it's just that's life, and it always has been. But when we're Well, you know, you know what I've noticed too, and I have a, a real simple appreciation for everything passes. Yep. You know, it passes. I mean, just hang tight. You know, I have people come in; they're overwhelmed. They think that this is the snapshot of their life, and this is the way it's going to be forever. Exhale. Mm-hmm. You know, the power and the importance of breathing and exhaling and trying to de-stress yourself and just realizing through imagery everything passes. Mm-hmm. And that miracle question of what does it look like when it's passed, and how are you going to act differently? Yeah. But I think we also have to have the mindset to let it go to pass too, because I know like when my, and I'll just use the example, when my dad died, I kept spinning in his death, even though it was a beautiful moment, I just kept reliving it in my mind over and over and over. And I couldn't move through it until I let it go. You know, so I, I just, um, I think your book, you know, The Detoxing of Caregivers has a lot to offer people. Again, it's it's a, a short, easy read, um, but I think I think it'll open up your mind, your heart, and your soul in terms of just life in general. Um, any any last thing that you want to cover here, Larry? I can't believe our hour has flown by so quickly. No, no, I'm good, Lori. I mean, just, you know, you, you've heard me say this, you know, forever, but thank you so much for doing all the things that you do. Well, you know, thanks for being part of the team. I mean, none of us does this alone, you know. Um, yeah, understood. It takes it takes uh, takes a village, as they say. And the best way for us to um, get a hold of you is just to go to drltforce.com. So drlarrytforce.com, drltforce.com. And um, I also have on the blog um, a link to your um, your uh, link on Amazon to pick up the book directly there as well. And oh, that's I've, great. Thank you so much, Lori. And are you still opening to, you know, going around and keynoting or doing training? Absolutely. You know, I, um, I, that's, that's part of uh, you know, the formula of what I do. You know, okay. So I am definitely available. I look forward to... Um, you know, connecting to um, you know, individuals and anybody that uh, would like to continue the conversation, uh, you know, please do not hesitate to connect with me. Okay. Well, wonderful, Larry. Thank you so much for your time All today. All right, Lori. Thank, thank you so much and best for the holidays and best for the new year. And I'll be in touch with you. Sounds great. Um, for those of you that are new to the Live and Social Network here, you might want to check out one of our uh, cohorts, uh, Rachel Perrin, who is the culinary director for Kowalski's Market. She has a show called What's for Dinner Tonight? And the podcast only averages, you know, 10 to 20 minutes per episode, but it's kind of a fun chat. Her and Adam Lee, her producer, um, will have different um, foodtastic friends and colleagues and they chat about seasonal flavors and favorite foods and trending topics in nutrition and, um, you know, what the heck you're going to have for dinner tonight. And you can also go to Kowalskis.com and uh, get some great seasonal menu suggestions as well or easy-to-fix ones, too. Uh, something that's quick will get you in and out the door. So you can go to Kowalskis.com for those menus. That's K-O-W-A-L-S-K-I-S. Um 
all of our shows here on Alzheimer's Speaks are archived. So, you know, if you missed one, don't worry about it. You can go back and click on it. We just had a great conversation with uh, Jade Angelica, um, who's with Healing Moments. And we talked about her book, her um, play that she wrote, her trainings that she does. Just a fascinating lady, fun conversation. We have also had a couple uh, episodes lately on music and memory and uh, uh, several other authors as well. So check it out. We've got, you know, five, six years worth of um, worth of shows there with great detail from people all around the world. Um, if you haven't visited our dementia chats, you can do that through going to kind of our mothership, alzheimerspeaks.com, and you can find our latest videos there. All of those video interviews um our, our panelists actually live with dementia. And so our last one was on dementia and caring for pets. You know, is it a good fit for people? You can also find um, information out about upcoming um, previews of His Neighbor Phil. I'll be in Minnesota in uh, January and March, and I would love to bring it to your state. Just let me know. And don't forget about our blog as well. Um, we've got some great articles there. In fact, um, uh, there'll be one coming out, I believe, tomorrow from uh, Baka Sabi, who has written four songs with some musician friends specific to dementia and caregiving and um, the different stages of caring. In wrapping up, I just want to wish you all a happy holidays, and we will catch you next week. If you haven't checked out your free memory chip, please do so. Just go to alzheimerspeaks.com and sign up for our tools. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Bye now. Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the Wayshowers who will help your journey a lot easier.